Welcome to Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. I'm your aptly named host of your favorite hebdomadal podcast. Oh, I'm glad you're with me. I'd suffer the embarrassment of gingival hyperplasia if I had to chew on the idea that you missed this week's show. Risk management two. Gene Takagi returns to complete our coverage of the risks lurking in your employee relations, facilities, events, and vehicles. Also, what to do to keep those risks at a minimum so incidents don't hurt your nonprofit. Gene is our legal contributor and principal at NEO, the Nonprofit and Exempt Organizations Law Group. Part one was a few weeks ago on October 4th. On Tony's Take Two, Podcast Pleasantries. We're sponsored by Turn2 Communications, PR and content for nonprofits. Your story is their mission. Turn-2.co. It's always a pleasure, routinely a pleasure to welcome Gene Takagi back to the show. You know who he is, for goodness sake. You know he's our legal contributor. You know he's the managing attorney of NEO, the nonprofit and exempt organizations law group in San Francisco. You know that he edits the wildly popular nonprofitlawblog.com, and that he is a part-time lecturer at Columbia University. The firm is at neolawgroup.com, and he's at GTAC. Gene, welcome back. Thanks. It's great to join you again, Tony. Always a pleasure. Always. Thank you, Gene. So we'll continue our conversation from uh, early October on uh, some things lurking uh, in potential incidents that we want to uh, we want to flesh out, and then how to how to mitigate them so that incidents don't run out of control and you know harm your harm listeners' uh, good works. And what do you say? First, I ask you uh, how you doing out there in San Francisco. Doing pretty good, Tony. Um, we have a sort of a, a late, nice spell of weather here. Um, and so uh, I'm enjoying, enjoying any time outside. Good. Wonderful. Is this a busy time for you, fourth quarter? Any busier than other parts of the year? Um, pretty busy. A lot of people are trying to, to get deals done before the holidays start. And um, so um, a lot of uh, uh, work around those, those type of things. So we work with like mergers and, and some risk management policy issues for, for organizations that are trying to get stuff done before the holidays. Well, look at that lovely segue you just gave us. So thank you. So let's, let's talk about uh, employment. I, I'd like to start with uh, employment-related risks like sexual harassment and discrimination what what do we what what's what's potentially out there? Uh, how do we identify potential trouble before it becomes an incident? Help, help us out, please. Yeah, sure. And and um, I'd like to to sort of first off say that employment is a great area to start because uh, for those who have directors and officers insurance, I believe eighty five to ninety percent plus of claims are all employment related so for nonprofit organizations with employees, employment is probably the highest area of risk um, and it's so uh, something that boards and nonprofit leader leadership should definitely be thinking about 
And especially in these times when, you know, the movements of, of Me Too and Time's Up and racial equity, social justice, Black Lives Matter, that's all been going on for a few years now. Um, I don't find that it's losing momentum in terms of creating identification of problem areas in nonprofit organizations. So some people are are worried that maybe funding for those areas um, is going to be more trend-like and and could diminish over time. But in terms of the risks that those things are raising up, uh, Mm -hmm. and, and I think valid risks. I mean, now we're kind of more aware that these are problems that we should have always been aware of and that, you know, we're really responsible for dealing with it. We can't, you know, bury our heads in the sand now that we know about it. The, you know, Pandora's box is open and we've got to deal with it. So first, first of all, I think that's, that's the, the point to make is we know um, there are incidences going on that are pervasive. Uh, not just in the for-profit sector, not just in government, but also in the nonprofit sector with respect to uh, employment law, uh, harassment, sexual harassment. Um, yeah, and- we've seen we've seen the high-profile cases. You know, as you're saying, lots of in, in lots of industries, uh, and including in the in in nonprofits as well. And if I bring in children as well into this, which goes beyond uh, harm to employees, but involves employees, which we have to think about as well as are, are we monitoring and, and keeping our employees um, accountable for, for treating our beneficiaries well, then we've got to think about everything from like the Catholic Church to Boy Scouts to uh, Doctors Without Borders, um, to, to all sorts of organizations that were long, long trusted and saying, what's been happening? And now again, we know what has been happening. What are they doing about it? And what do other organizations, even the smaller ones, what are they doing about it? Because we know these problems are pervasive. They've been going around for a long, a long time. There's some systemic things that are just built into our systems that uh, have allowed these things to go on without people being held accountable, what are we doing? So, you know, the, fir- the first thing is just to, to make sure that it's on the radar at every, at every level of leadership and down through the employees as well, that, that they understand that the organization is focused on protecting its employees, on protecting the people it serves from sexual harassment, sexual discrimination, uh, and other forms of discrimination, including racial discrimination. Yeah, it, it, it's not just it's not sufficient to just have a statement on your website that you know we we value our people and our beneficiaries and you know our etc. You know, and it, it it's our number one focus is to keep everyone safe and protected. You know that that's that's just the beginning. You know, what are you actually doing to keep everyone safe? Yeah, absolutely. And it's not just the legal risk and the financial risk. I, I think it's a good time to point out, sometimes the most harmful risks are the reputational risks that yeah. are involved, the PR risks, the communication risks. Um, you can kill the organization by being legally compliant and not fin- you know, financially solvent, at least for the moment. But if you just alienate all your donors and have beneficiaries complain about you know, the, the type of treatment they've received, that's an easy way to, to kill an organization. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So what, what's in our, uh, 
employment. Well, let's start with the sexual harassment. You know, the since you're you know you're alluding to it, and awareness is so much greater than than it has been, and and it's I'm not sure where it needs to be, but there's a lot more attention paid to it. Let's start with sexual harassment. Sure. Great point. So what are those risk factors that we should be looking for and planning um, uh, around as we identify them, um, if that tends to be the case? So um, characteristics of the work environment, that's what we're looking at. So are there sexist attitudes among coworkers? Are there, um, is it an unprofessional work environment in terms of the language that we allow uh, employees to use with one another? Is there a skewed sex ratio or gender ratio in the workplace? Uh, is there a knowledge of grievance procedures for sexual harassment incidents? How do you report them? Um, you know, is there a feeling of safety if you do report them? What if it's, you know, your supervisor, who do you go to? Um, do you feel protected if that happens? Um, are, have, you know, has the leadership ensured that legal compliance um, uh, is uh, paramount here. So in terms of making sure that any required trainings are being taken, any required signage is being displayed, and um, you are uh, adequately training uh, everybody who's in a position um, to interact with others about sexual harassment, creating your own policies and procedures, training the board and employees and volunteers, regardless of whether it's required or not. I think all of those things are really good things. And as you said before, it's one thing to have a policy and talk the talk. It's another to enforce it and you know hold people accountable. And that's something that, that nonprofits have to do. All right. The, the responsibility for, uh, let's take different pieces of this. So let's start with the, at the policy level. Is, is the responsibility for policies and a, and, a, and a reporting structure, is that, does that lie with the board? Well, ultimately, it does lie with the board, although the board probably isn't going to be the one that, you know, that drafts that policy. Yeah, they're not drafting. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. But, but they, the board members need to be sure that there are adequate policies, that you're at least complying with state law, state and federal law. Right. So that's, that's, that should be a question that they're asking their executive, right? Their executive director. And it's not good enough just to ask the executive director and then just put another, you know, piece of, of, of duties and responsibilities on your executive director without adequately providing that person with the information resources they need. So perhaps yeah. they're not legal experts in HR. Most executive directors aren't. Um, so have you supplied them with, you know, um, uh, an amount in the budget or pro bono assistant or something that gives the executive somewhere to go to when they have an employment issue to develop a sexual harassment policy that makes sure that the, the charity is uh, operating consistent with the law in this area. So that's where the boards need to act. And now we're starting to get into what, what do you do to uh, minimize the risk? You know, you mentioned money in the budget, money in the budget for maybe it's a consultant. Maybe you need some kind of an, an audit of your of your, you know, you mentioned the uh, the characteristics of the work environment, you know, gender ratios, um, attitudes, policies. You know, maybe you need it. Maybe it's worth spending on an audit to by someone who does know all the laws so that 
red flags can get raised and policies can be drafted that are that are the right kind. Yeah, ideally, I would say that's right. Um, if you can get an employment law audit, um, that would be fantastic. Okay. I know realistically that a lot of organizations are going to feel, well, we can't afford it. We can't, you know, we don't have the funds. You have to really think about this now, though, about how you're investing and, and what message that sends out to those you're trying to protect. So if you're not investing in your employees and protecting your employees, then there's going to be an issue, especially if the organization has had complaints in the past. And if you've swept them under the rug, or if it looks like you've swept them under the rug, employment issues are always really tough, right? Because you usually have to treat those things confidentially, and you can't necessarily share with the rest of the organization what the outcome that situation with without, you know, risking defamation or, you know, violation of privacy and confidentiality. So um, it's tricky uh, in managing this. So having an expert um, available is great. And always prevention um, is, is going to be much more effective and efficient than trying to deal with the problems after that happened, especially if they become pervasive in the system. And, uh, what about insurance for for this? Is, this? is this something that we can insure against? Well, yeah, it is because you and I talked about it in the first uh, in risk management one a couple of weeks ago. So this this is a place for insurance. And then you get into the issue that you and I talked about, which is you want to be insuring individuals against claims against them. Should the organization be insuring them against claims against the individuals? But in, in, insurance has a place here. Yeah, absolutely. An employment practices policy insurance, it may be wrapped up into your director's and officer's insurance, and you want to know who exactly does it cover. Does it cover employees? What about if a volunteer is given supervisory duties and the volunteer engages in um, this unlawful behavior? So all all those things need to be considered. If you've got insurance, talk with your insurance company and find out exactly what it covers. So you have you know, confidence in, in knowing what your risks are. Volunteers, interesting. I mean, there are organizations that could have a hundred or more volunteers, you know, working different hours, different at different places. We're going to get to facilities, but, you know, some loose cannon volunteer could, could, uh, you know, say something inappropriate and, and all of a sudden you've got an incident on your hands. Yeah. Absolutely. And it doesn't take much. An inappropriate mention, an inappropriate touch, and, and now you've got a big problem. Yeah, and I, I think there's one term that maybe people are familiar with, but um, we could drill down a little bit deeper into it, and that's the hostile work environment. Um, and that could apply to both sexual harassment or um, some sort of unlawful discrimination. Um, and so in the sexual harassment area, if you're allowing an environment of behaviors and, you know, not just present behaviors, uh, but also past behaviors of, of allowing like people to hang up those posters in atmosphere where people feel genuinely uncomfortable and unsafe. Um, that could be the basis of a sexual harassment claim. And it, it could sort of contribute to the overall, you know, case that somebody might make when they're complaining uh, about the employer, about the nonprofit, and that emanate from volunteers as well as employees. The one thing about volunteers, though, is if a volunteer raises the claim of sexual harassment, they don't have the same protections that an employee would have from sexual harassment. 
So it's sort of a different legal issue when a volunteer claims um, sexual harassment um, or a beneficiary claims sexual harassment. But it doesn't mean that they don't have some remedies to go after the organization um, if that should happen to them. So just to, to be aware, even if they don't have employee protections, if they are sexually harassed, they might have another legal avenue to sue the organization for how they were treated or mistreated. Mm-hmm. You said something really interesting, Gene, I want to explore a little bit, which was that if there's something that's hostile in the environment, uh, let's say it's a poster on someone's locker or inside someone's locker, you know, or whatever it is, and there's never a complaint about it, but that could be used as evidence in some other case where there is a complaint of a hostile work environment. So it may not be, a, so, so it may not be about that, that, that poster or whatever picture, but that, that could be evidence that hurts you in some other incident. Yeah, exactly. And an environment is sort of the totality, right, of all of the yeah. things physically and, and the behaviors that are going on. And so, yeah, that just sort of adds fuel to the fire for somebody who wants to complain. Um, so to the extent that there is this very inappropriate picture in somebody's locker, but it's visible enough that other people see it, and that's one of the base, bases for the complaint. Um, and, and management knows about it and did absolutely nothing about it. Um, could be seen as condoning it. Um, so that's, that is a big problem. So, so in other words, don't wait for a complaint. If, there's, if, there, if you're aware of something, take action to remedy it so that it doesn't later come back to bite you in some other, in, whether, whether it's related to that or some other incident. You know, if, if you see something, you got to be proactive. Don't wait, yeah. for, don't wait for there to be a complaint is basically what I'm saying. Exactly. And I'll maybe just add that you mentioned about the legal audit. I think there is a useful exercise that, you know, people can engage in. Some of your board members have probably been managers and have some HR experience. And together with management of the nonprofit, they could discuss, um, you know, what are these risks? What if it was my daughter that was working here and she faced this situation how would I feel about it? You know, what can we do to stop that? Is it just sharing policies around? Is it enforcing when we see that photo and management is aware of it? We, we talk with that person, we get that taken down, then we have written policies about it. Like, what can we do to ensure a safe workplace for all of our uh, uh, employees? And it's not just discrimination um, or sexual harassment that would occur from, from you know, a man to a woman. Um, we've got to be more sensitive about what type of uh, harassment may be going on, which could also be based on sexual orientation or gender identification. It could be with trans communities. So um, I didn't mean to oversimplify it. But there's all sorts of sexual harassment and sexual abuse that can take place. So you, you stay away from those risks, reduce and mitigate them as much as possible. It's time for a break. Turn to communications. May I just remind you of the outlets where Turn To has relationships and where they can get your voice heard. May I please? The Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Chronicle of Philanthropy, Fast Company, Market Watch, USA Today, and those are just the national outlets. Turn To, they're going to help you hone your message, as you've heard me saying, and then they're going to get that message heard in these kinds of outlets. Turn to communications. You know what? Your story is their mission. Turn-to.co. 
co. Now back to risk management two. All right, so we've we've bled over uh, from sexual harassment to to employment discrimination. Uh, is there anything you want to say explicitly about discrimination, employment discrimination, uh, that that we haven't talked about yet? Sure. So I mean, there's there's a lot of similarities between the work environment that right. we, we've talked about, but right. there are other types of risk factors that that exist for for uh, discrimination. So we have. Uh, race or discriminatory attitudes amongst our co-workers? Are there skewed diversity ratios in the workplace? Is there knowledge of grievance procedures for discrimination incidences? Um, and so somewhat similar to sexual harassment, but a little bit different in that are we taking into account not just racial discrimination, but discrimination for uh, disabilities, discrimination based on pregnancy, uh, you know, discrimination based on uh, any unlawful factor, some national origin, um, age, and beyond what the law. Age. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, uh, how are our attitudes, and how is our employee composition and our management composition? Are we just hiring one type of person, or uh, are we definitely excluding certain type of people from being employed? in our organization or being employed in management positions. And if we do have somebody representative of a community that, you know, it would be considered a minority community, is there inclusion in there or is there fear um, or a concern that they could be treated as a token, uh, you know, just to take the good picture looks like we're a little bit more diverse, but we only have one person of this type in our organization amongst a sea of other people who, uh, don't look anything like that person. So um, it's something to, to really think about um, uh, in, in the discrimination area. And probably yeah. racial discrimination is the hottest topic right now. But, but again, there, there are, um, you know, I think I was often reminded at, at some of these conferences last year that the biggest minority group and the biggest growing, the fastest growing group are the disabled individuals. Um, so it's something that we need to, to really think about in terms of inclusiveness and are we taking um, steps to accommodate laws that um, follow you know, those principles? Are, are we complying with those things? Um, and beyond legal compliance, you know, what, what are we showing that, that we care and respect these individuals and we want to treat them equally? Um, and fairly. I think those are all things that we need to consider. And Gene, is there anything that's specific to employment discrimination mitigation, you know, different from the, the sexual harassment discussion that we, that we just had? Well, I, I think in, in general terms, it's very similar in terms of um, investing um, in understanding these issues developing policies, enforcing them. These things are, are quite different. Um, so yeah. it is a different type of training, a different type of expertise um, that's required. And, and as you think about it, um, it it's worth thinking about, um, you know, something termed intersectionality that, you know, one person doesn't identify with just one thing. So I'm not just Asian American or I'm not just a male. Um, I identify with many different things. And, in some cases, I may have an advantage, and in other cases, I may be at disadvantage, and there may be more risk that I could be discriminated against for those purposes. But 
we all wear multiple identities. So it's worth thinking about how to think about each individual as a collection of identities and bearing multiple um, or different sets of risks in terms of what they may be facing as they're working in that, that employment atmosphere. So um, to, to get a sense of that, um, there's no single expert who can help you in all these areas. It is a matter of making it a learning organization uh, and there's a learning curve involved. What's your advice for the, the small organizations that are, are not going to have the, the, the capacity to do what I said, uh, whatever, 15 minutes ago, or, you know, an audit, a comprehensive audit and a, a consultant to help you draft the policies? What are, what are the smaller orgs that, that don't have that wherewithal? What's your advice for them? Sure. So there are some good resources out there. So um, the risk nonprofit risk management center, for example, um, may have, you know, be a, a good one-stop resource place. The national um, uh, association for, for nonprofits um, is, is kind of uh, the national council, I sorry, of nonprofits um, is, is another good resource area um, that probably will send you to a lot of other places with links those are our places and state associations and state attorney generals um, also have some resources for you. There's a lot available online for the executive director to be tasked with looking at all of this is probably unrealistic for most organizations. So for board members or others who might be volunteers to the organization, if they can help and sort of identify some great spots um, that might serve as, as resource areas or guides for policies, um, that would be that would be great. There is a lot of common I mean, common sense goes a long long way as well, right? If we're thinking about this, especially the mutual common sense where the board is active um, in, in helping think about these issues. But there are some built-in systemic problems that are hard to come out of if we're very insular. So if it's the same board members that have been around for twenty years, um, it's unlikely they're going to develop solutions um, that aren't already being implemented now. So getting new blood into the, the governance, getting new volunteers to help out committees that are composed of people other than board members that can help out. Those are ways to get help. And you may find that your community is willing to help you on these short-term ad hoc you know, uh, exercises. So I, I would suggest that. And pro bono help from, from some um, bar associations um, for existing charities. Uh, you may find out that they're a great resource where law firms are willing to provide, you know, a few hours of pro bono help, and that may be all you need. Okay, those are excellent ideas. Thank you. I want to I want to just highlight. You said uh, the nonprofit risk management association and the National Council of Nonprofits, right? Those are the two organizations that you you think that that, that have resources online for folks. Yeah, it's a good starting place. I, and I think it's okay. the Risk Management Center. So the Nonprofit Risk Management Center. A risk Center. Thank you. Okay. And then, of course, the Attorneys General. And um, yeah, you know, the idea of, a, of an ad hoc committee, it doesn't have to be a committee of the board. It could be an ad hoc committee of, of uh, board and volunteers, maybe, or just volunteers. You know, if you, if you can identify the expertise to, uh, to help you, you know, you can have these ad hoc committees, advisory committees. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if somebody comes and asks you to, to volunteer and serve on the board for three years, that's a 
a big ask, right? But if you ask somebody who's, you know, a, an employment lawyer and say, hey, we just could use your, you know, two hours of your time to help facilitate a discussion for us on employment law risks and talking about sexual harassment and discrimination and what type of policies, you know, we might adopt, you're going to find a lot more people willing to give you that two hours and, you know, three hour, three years of board service. Excellent. Excellent. Let's go to the uh, the facilities, whether it's uh, our office or some place where we serve folks. Maybe it's a school, you know. Maybe it's even out uh, something outdoors. It's still, facilities count if you own the property or if you're renting the property and you're running programs. Just in a, uh, uh, doesn't have to be in a building. Uh, what are what are our our risks there, Gene? Sure. The, the obvious risks that are activity specific, you know, first of all, so if you've got a gym or a pool or an auditorium of some kind, yeah. um, stairs, you know, elevators, what, whatever, you're going to have all of those specific risks that are probably pretty obvious, although sometimes you fail to think about them. And, and um, you know, it, it is a matter of making sure that, that you are sort of complying with um, OSHA and the Americans with Disability Act and making sure that your facilities are safe. But there are other like more subtle things like lighting, um, you know, accessibility in general, like are your hallways not only big enough for wheelchairs, which, you know, might be required for ADA, but, you know, is it safe for, for workers to, to uh, be able to navigate through, you know, you know their workspace? Um, or is the copy machine on top of, you know, the coffee maker and, um, you know, when we're resource constrained, we're oftentimes working in spaces that are less than ideal in terms of their size. Um, Chairs and furniture and like ergonomics, you know, um, those occupational uh, injuries are are increasing for, you know, people who end up with bad backs or, or, you know, um, uh, carpal tunnel syndrome, all sorts of occupational injuries that can happen when you sit, you know, at a computer all day. And I, I don't know if you've heard, but you know, uh, maybe a couple of years ago, they were saying sitting is the new smoking in terms of, uh, <laughs> of occupational injuries um, and, and how bad it can be for your health. So, um, yeah, thinking about, you know, what you can do to alleviate some of those concerns, even if there's no law against requiring people, you know, to, to have a, you know, um, or not to have a like a standing desk, if that's what some people want to go for or. Um, other ways to, to uh, actively move around, but maybe just making it a policy because you want to show that you care about your employee health, uh, about you know having the ability to, to work remotely sometimes, or you know encouraging people to get outside um, or stretch uh, every now and then. Just providing a few tips uh, and facilitating some other activities, physical movements for your staff can be really helpful and doesn't necessarily have to be very expensive. And oftentimes, you know, studies will show that they actually improve um, sort of the, the um, output and the productivity of your employees. If you give them some space to do those things, but those are things, some subtle things to, to think about air temperature too, weather, as you mentioned, um, uh, which could play a part, you know, I think, just before we got on the show, we were talking a little bit about weather and, you know, that can pose safety risks for, for some of our employees when they're fires or hurricanes or 
downpours. So, you know, to think about what our policies are when when we have um, extreme weather events um, or if we have outdoor activities and we've got weather issues there. And of course, now, you know, that we've been dealing with COVID-19, um, trying to think about how our work environments have now changed for so many of us uh, and for employees who are working at home, are we responsible as employers for making sure they have the right equipment, um, including sort of um, those that would promote uh, good physical health in terms of ergonomics and stuff? Should we be investing in chairs or desks if they, you know, are working out of a, a milk crate in a box? Um, you know, do we do we need to um, make sure? Uh, or be aware of, of what our employees are facing um, in terms of their own work environment that we're asking them to use. All right. So you've raised lots of issues for, for tons of, you know, awareness. Um, what do we do? Uh, I mean, there, uh, on the, on the simplest level, there's insurance for the types of injuries that you were referring to, but you raised a whole host of other things. You know, what do we do to, keep these risks uh, minimized? Yeah, so I, I think one thing is to ask your employees. Um, so make sure that you you are asking and showing care for your employees and their health. Um, so I, I think brainstorming with them, and they probably understand the importance of, of the organization's financial limitations as well. So that, that would be one place to start. We've talked about sort of online resources and, and the resources that we already mentioned, the National Council of Nonprofits and the Nonprofit Risk Management Center, they do deal with things like facilities risks as well. So you can find resources there. Um, you'll also find it on your state OSHA uh, sites. They'll talk about, um, you know, good tips. Um, we, you know, we also have to worry nowadays um, and, this is bleeding over a little bit into our discussion about discrimination, but for some organizations who are um, promoting things like uh, racial equity and social justice, security started to become uh, a threat for the employees and leaders in those organizations. So, you know, do we keep an open office or do we have a locked office? How public do we make a display of where our offices are located on our website? And I've had one client whose leadership has had to move into a hotel because of the physical threats that they've been receiving. Oh, um, uh, and it's, it's a concern for more and more organizations now as um, we've become a little bit more polarized, um, especially when we get close to an election year again and the different movements are active and there are people on different sides of those movements. So uh, personal security um, and again, asking your employees, um, do they feel safe? Um, do they have any thoughts about, you know, increasing the security that they have within the facilities? That's all really important as well. And that's, that's no longer only for organizations that have some kind of political or, you know, traditionally um, polarizing or, um, or contentious mission. I mean, it, it could be it could be any organization. I mean, you know, someone can object to to a humane society protecting animals, you know, because they think the the money that goes there should be going to help people or you know whatever warped thinking they have. So it, it's it's no longer just if you have a 
a controversial mission. It, 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 security applies now everywhere. Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. And we've heard those stories in the news about workplace violence. And in San Francisco, in the legal community, we had a law firm here. It's probably not 20 years ago, but where a gunman came into the office um, and it was a personal issue, but they shot and killed multiple um, uh, lawyers and, and legal assistants and paralegals um, uh, in a high rise building and, you know, a very traumatic and and terrible, horrifying event. But we do have to start to think about our, you know, safety of our employees. And it's an elevated risk, I think, now. now. All right. Should we we move on to events? Can I I transition? Or is there anything more we need to think about facilities-wise? Well, in the more mundane way, I'll just mention renting uh, to other folks. So there are all sorts of risks that are associated with renting. If we're renting part of our space, either for day use or for subleasing to others, and you know they come from the nature of the agreement itself. Is it a, an agreement where you've allocated risks and where you've mutually understood how you've allocated the risks and the obligations and um, what you need to provide in terms of insurance? Uh, and then different uh, type of risk is, is will it generate unrelated business income tax, um, your rental income? So uh, a, a more legal tax technical risk, but something to think about if you're going to, you know, rent out space because you think it'll earn extra income because you need to factor that into your, your business proposition. It's time for Tony's take two. Oh yes. The podcast pleasantries. I didn't say podcast this time. What a pleasure. I have to revisit these from time to time so I can say thank you. Thank you for listening. I'm just, I'm just grateful that you listen. I'm glad that the show brings you value. It helps you with your conversations back at your nonprofit, whether those conversations are with your VP or your CEO or your board. I'm gratified, gratified that it's helping you. So that's it. It's a simple one. Pleasantries to you. Thank you for listening to Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. And that is Tony's Take Two. We've got Buku, but loads more time for Risk Management Two. Gene, events were a huge issue, of course, in 2020, because so many events got canceled. Um, I know organizations that lost a lot of money. They didn't have the right. Uh, they didn't have the right clauses, or the clauses may have been very good, but they were interpreted against them, and they felt you know, they didn't have any real standing, or it was just too expensive to enforce their rights under a contract. And all right, so you know, so we know about contracts. You you certainly welcome to say. Uh, explain more eloquently than I did, you know, what, what goes into protecting yourself in event contracts, but um, then, you know, we can, we can talk beyond the contracts about crowds and security at events and things like that. What, 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 but let's start with the, the simplest and, and the, uh, the one that was so, so popular and, and remains so because lots of event contracts get signed three, four years in advance to, to book a space. So help us out with events contracts. 
Yeah. And just like you, Tony, I've heard stories from clients and others about organizations going under because they weren't able to um, hold an event, um, which was going to be their primary fundraising event for the year. Um, and they weren't able to hold it. But the contract that they signed with the uh, facility or the hotel said that they had to book a certain number of rooms and that they had to pay for it. Um, regardless of what happened, unless the contract said otherwise. And so that provision that you mentioned in the contract that some people were able to, to lean upon to their um, benefit is called a force majeure clause. I know that can put you into jargon jail, but that got into a little bit of the vernacular last year. Um, some Latin terms basically meaning if there's some kind of disaster that's outside of your control, that you don't have to be responsible for it. That's an out for you not to perform under the contract, which for the nonprofit is usually paying the, the facility or the hotel. Um, so the question is, what type of disaster are we talking about? And force majeure isn't just hooked to like what you know the federal government defines as a disaster. So sometimes it's very particular. It's exactly what they say in the agreement. Mm. Um, and nobody, or I shouldn't say nobody, but very few you know, people put pandemic. Um, and, sure. you know, now I think more people are looking for it. But if you're shifting risk, you know, if you're going to put that provision and you're going to include pandemic should COVID or something else come along, because we're now not more knowledgeable that it could be another virus that comes along in another year that's not COVID. But, you know, every, what, 10 or 20 years, one of these things happens. Um, sometimes they, they, they're more severe than others. And other times there's less, but we know now that there's this risk. If we're going to put the risk on the hotel and the facility that we can cancel the event and they're going to have an empty space that they may not be able to, to re-rent out, which would be typical you know, for a pandemic, we've shifted the risk to them, meaning that they're going to negotiate for a higher price, right? Um, or we're going to be looking for cancellation insurance. But now insurance companies are also knowledgeable. There's this pretty you know, significant um, chance of something like a pandemic or an epidemic on a, a smaller scale happening maybe every 10 or 20 years where this could happen again. And, you know, before that, maybe we didn't think that that would ever happen since, you know, a hundred years ago. But now when we think about it, we've had AIDS and we've had the bird flu and, and others that we have to really think um, about these things. So um, force majeure clauses, that's one way to, to help prevent it, but it means it's going to mean more cost or higher costs. So um, it's something to think about. And event cancellation insurance is kind of another thing, but also could be very expensive. Have to think about it. But beyond the contract, okay. Tony, um, what, what do we do, especially, you know, with COVID is, you know, how do we choose our venue? Do we go virtual? Um, do we mix virtual and in-person? What's our maximum capacity? Um, you know, what are our entry criteria? Are we going to require vaccinations or proof of vaccinations? Or are we not going to? Are we allowed to even? In some states, we might not be allowed to. Um, masks, um, sanitization stations and products, signage, um, social distance seatings, all things we need to think about around COVID. And overall, it's management. What considerations did you make in planning this event to protect people who are going to be there? Like, did you do anything or did you do nothing? Did you just look online here for a few safety tips? 
or did you actually put it in your budget? You were going to invest in people or a consultant or somebody that was going to help you keep everybody safe. Because that could be the thing that makes the news, right? If somebody gets sick at that event and um, spreads it, um, is your organization responsible? Well, if it went through all of these steps and really organized all the safety tips, you're going to be looking much better than if everybody goes, well, you know, we didn't do that much. We just sort of held the event and thought, you know, everything was going to be safe. Gene, it sounds like you're saying you know, listening to an episode of nonprofit radio is not going to be sufficient to protect you in, in case of an incident. Maybe not, Johnny. You, if you listen to that, every I episode. I listened to Gene Takagi on nonprofit radio. I, <laughs> I, that was my, that, and the cross-examination. That was the extent of your due diligence. So, all right, you need to go further. This is the starting place. Yeah. Starting place. Okay. But, but include it. I, man, I'd love to see an episode of nonprofit radio used as, uh, as evidence. Not, not that I'm wishing cases on anyone, uh, legal actions against anyone, but if it, uh, if, if it should happen to you, you know, you might shout out your uh, your episode of nonprofit radio listening as as evidence of your due diligence. Okay. <laughs> I like it. It's a start. It's a start. <laughs> okay. Um, you have a concern about event registrations if if they're if if it's if it's out of state. Well, what's what's the concern there? Oh, so this goes right along your area, Tony. If you're a New York charity and you're holding an event in California, well. You're going to have to register with the attorney general in California and 40 some states may have some sort of registration requirement um, uh, associated with soliciting in that state. So definitely, if you have a physical event in another state, you've got to really think about registration, Um, possibly also qualification to do business, which is a separate type of filing and maybe even state tax exemption. Um, if 501c3 status doesn't automatically make you exempt from state taxes. So hmm. you're raising money, you're holding events, you've got boots on the ground in another state. You've got to think about multiple filings that might be required. So if you're going to do that, you're really going to have to talk with somebody who has a little bit of legal expertise in that state or with familiarity with that state's laws in order to figure figure those things out. Are you seeing that all these concerns and potential expenses that we we just most people you know did not anticipate most nonprofits did not anticipate before 2020 are you seeing all this confluence leading more organizations to to strictly virtual events um i i think i seen still organizations leaning towards virtual. I was responsible for being part of a steering committee of a conference that was planned for um, uh, in-person in December. And we made the decision two months ago that we would still go virtual. So um, uh, even into early 2022, um, I'm seeing people shift um, from in-person to virtual. Although I'm hearing also, now that there's a little bit more confidence that we may be close to reaching our low point in terms of uh, COVID cases and hospitalizations, that this may be the new normal, that we, we may not get lower than this, which is a little depressing. Um, but that may be where we're, where we're at, in which case we're going to have to start determining you know, how we feel about in-person conferences and Capacity is really an issue, right? It, it's very different to have a thousand people in 
uh, a room versus, you know, uh, 200 people in, in the same size room. So uh, something to think about. And are we all comfortable wearing masks inside or are we not going to require that? So lots of things to still think about that I think most organizations are still struggling with that I've come into contact with. I think they're planning late 2022 is kind of where they feel comfortable of, of uh, planning in-person conferences without the backup virtual. Still, so many issues to, to, to grapple with that, um, that we didn't anticipate and now we have to now we have to plan for as as best we can um, eventualities to 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 be conscious of. Um, let's 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 finish up with uh, cars, vehicles of any type. Doesn't have to be a car. Could be a truck. We if we're delivering, if we have if we have folks using their own cars for for our business purposes. What 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 what's what's out there for those? Sure. So, I mean, on one, on one hand, we have our own organizational vehicles to the extent that, you know, a charity has its own cars. Um, so, of course, commercial auto insurance policies um, uh, and physical damage uh, uh, to the vehicle and medical insurance that would cover uh, anybody that was harmed in the accident. All of that is, is uh, of course, important. And to the extent that it's not required by state law, the organization should think about whether it's going to be required as an organizational policy to, to make sure that it is protected and to what amount. Because, um, uh, you know, if, if, you know, your executive director was driving or one of your employees was driving an organizational car and uh, it hit and, you know, harmed somebody else, um, what type of damage could that be if there wasn't insurance to cover the harm, the physical harm to that other um, person that got, got uh, injured? That would be something to think about and why the value of insurance uh, is worth considering. But I think more often for especially smaller nonprofits, it's not the organization's car, but the staff member driving their own car or a volunteer driving their mm-hmm. car. So now how does the organization show that it was responsible and saying, hey, volunteer, can you drive these kids over to the park um, for an event that we're going to have? You know, did we ask them for their driving, you know, record? Or did we even ensure that they have a driver's license? And did we make sure that they have their own personal auto insurance, which would typically cover first? But do we need non-owned automobile insurance for the organization as well? Um, So... Those are things to think about when somebody else is driving um, uh, is, is did we adequately protect people who are going to be in that car? And are we adequately protecting the organization in, in case somebody sues us and says the organization did not you know, show uh, responsibility in just letting anybody drive this car? And they didn't even look at the, you know, the model and make of the car. Maybe it is, you know, a 1950s. <laughs> you know, car that's barely running and uh, that breaks down. Um, uh, so there, there needs to be some sort of policy and, and check there. Um, and I think the new stuff that's coming out is ride sharing, Tony. So I think maybe yeah. more people than ever and organizations than ever are saying, no, we don't need a volunteer. Let's just Uber uh, or Lyft and get everybody across that way. So what type of protections do we have if somebody gets harmed? Um, if they're in a, an Uber or a Lyft. Um, and that may be partly, you know, the responsibility of the driver 
in which case I don't know if Uber and Lyft are necessarily having you know, what sort of coverage they have if their drivers are driving. What if their driver gave their tag to a friend to drive under their name? Oh, you know, what happens you know, then? Uh, then Uber and Lyft say they're not responsible. Maybe that other driver is kind of what lawyers say, judgment-proof. They don't have a lot of assets to pay for damages if you sue them and they're responsible. So how are you protecting people? Workers' comp can protect some employees who get harmed in the line of their duty, the line of their normal actions of their duties. But workers' comp generally doesn't protect uh, volunteers. So what do you do if a volunteer gets harmed? Um, do you feel responsible in any way if they were doing just work for the organization, they weren't doing anything personally, and they got harmed in a, in a car, whether it be their own car or whether it be an Uber or something else? What do you do for that person? Or do you do nothing? You just say, you're not an employee. We don't have workers' comp. We're not responsible. We don't have insurance to cover you. Um, sorry. Um, you know, that's another, again, not necessarily a legal risk, not even necessarily a financial risk per se, but it could be a reputational risk if that's... Yeah, if that's the situation and you rely on volunteers and all the other volunteers see the way you treated this uh, this, this uh, injured volunteer. Right. That's, that's the kind of reputational risk you're, you're, you're anticipating. And how your donors feel about that treatment of that volunteer as well, if it, you know, leaks out on social media or something. All right, Gene, like tons of awareness, you know, we, and we've talked about what, what you can do to, to mitigate the risks. Some of it involves a cost of money. Some of it is, is a cost of time. And I'm deliberately not saying just a cost of time because time is, is valuable, but, important things to be aware of. You know, it's, you know, I, you've, you've heard me say many times, you know, folks are running businesses. It doesn't, doesn't matter that you're incorporated as a nonprofit corporation. You're a corporation, you're running a business and it has to be run like a business. What do you want to leave us with Gene? Well, I'll just mention that I think last week was international charity fraud awareness week. Um, and you've talked about fraud in other areas, but that's another area of risk management that we didn't really touch upon, but should be sort of considered by anybody when they're figuring out their total risk management possibility is the risks of fraud. So I'll, I'll just leave you with that. There's a lot of resources out there, um, but if you Google International Charity Fraud Week, uh, it'll probably bring you to a page with a ton of resources. So um, I'll leave you with that. Gene Takagi. Our legal contributor, managing attorney of NEO, the nonprofit and exempt organizations law group. You should be following his blog, nonprofitlawblog.com. I recommend you also follow him uh, at GTAC on Twitter. Gene, thank you very much. Thanks, Tony. Great being with you. Uh, my pleasure. And I'm, I'm grateful, grateful for your, the, the wisdom that you share. Thank you very much. Next week. Sherry Kwam Taylor returns with strategic plan done, now pay for it. If you missed any part of this week's show, I beseech you, find it at TonyMartinetti.com. We're sponsored by Turn2 Communications, PR and content for nonprofits. Your story is their mission. My voice just cracked. Your story is their mission. Turn-2.co, like I'm 14. Our creative producer is Claire Meyerhoff. The show's social media is by Susan Chavez. 
Mark Silverman is our web guy, and this music is by Scott Stein. Thank you for that affirmation, Scotty. Be with me next week for Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Go out and be great.